the VFA. Colin Marshall, the bloke who I swung the pipe at, and his brothers all played for Waverley in the VFA second division, Victorian Football Association. Waverley wore red and black vertical stripes, their best player being Laurie Fowler, who used to play for Richmond and Melbourne, so they mattered to me. My mate was the youngest and most talented Marshall. Mr. Marshall, named Max, was a very good man. He assisted at Waverley Football Club in every capacity over many years, earning the odd engraved pewter beer mug in recognition. Remember how that was just like the ultimate accolade? If some sort of uh, uh, association or workplace gave you a engraved pewter beer mug. Salangor pewter. Salangor yeah. made in Singapore or Malaysia. Maybe. It was like saluting you. Yeah. You know? And everyone would get uh, an engraved pewter beer mug for the 21st. That's right. No, or a hip flask. A hip, an engraved hip flask mm. was the other option. The, the, if you had more than one pewter beer mug, they lived in the freezer. And, oh, uh, that's right, with that with with the frost on them. Yeah, and so you'd pour a beer into it, and it was already freezing yeah, cold from a long neck bottle of Melbourne yeah. bitter or something. And that that froth would just crest the top of the pewter beer mug, and honestly, oh, what a memory! I where can, are my pewter beer? I've, I've got a couple of them. What happened I've to pewter? A... What happened to pewter and its contribution to modern society? You don't see it anymore. <laughs> pewter, <laughs> pewter was a thing. It was. What is pewter? <laughs> What's the amalgam? <laughs> <laughs> Computer games. Okay. Mrs. Marshall had her hands full, coping with what essentially appeared to be four variations on the one man living in her home. The father and the three sons all worked in the plumbing business, all were steadfast South Melbourne supporters. Cheer, cheer the red and the white. The old man accepted favoured heavy metal music. The Marshall brothers, wow. were, the Marshall brothers, were massively into Metallica ten years before Enter Sandman shot to the top. Not satisfied with overseas bands like Iron Maiden right and Motorhead, the Marshalls also formed the entire audience at gigs by little-known local heavy metal outfits with names like Dirty Rats and Axe Attack. Dressed in sleeveless denim, <laughs> dressed in sleeveless denim jackets with steel studs, I attempted to appreciate the lifestyle of the Marshall Brothers for a good six months myself. But in the end, my heart wasn't in it. As a footballer, Marsh was so far ahead of anyone our age, it was hard to fathom. His skills were just unmatched. In primary and secondary school games, he orchestrated the most amazing manoeuvres you could wish to see. I felt privileged to play in the same side, offering token assistance such as a shepherd while he wove one of his many spells. He often outplayed like eight or nine or seriously ten opponents on his own. After a stint with the Fitzroy under-19s, he went on to play first division for Oakley in the VFA before becoming a hired gun midfielder for country and interstate sides. A curly-headed, when he grew his hair back, courageous, prolific possession winning Centerman, Marsh did very well for himself. But I wondered, if he couldn't make it in the AFL, oh, how good did you, you have to be? Yeah, and there was a lot of stories like that. What a great name for a music uh, or a family devoted to heavy, heavy metal because they would have been standing up at the front where their name adorned the speakers oh, the, the massive, stage. The massive the Marshall amps. Stacks. The floor-to-ceiling yeah. Marshall Stacks amplifiers. And, of course, that song. Marshall's Portable Music Machine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the very best. That you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a... 
Whoa. Uh, during the mid-80s, Waverly... It's a blast from the past. It is. Uh, unlike every other word we're speaking here. Uh, during the mid-80s, Waverly Football Club was blessed with the fabulous full forward whose solid build ensured that he shared with Collingwood's Renee Kink the nickname Hulk. Paul Angelus was his name. In reality, he looked more like an out-of-shape sliced alone with a soft perm. I know Paul Angelus. No. He, became, he was a customs officer and he went to play with Ainsley in Canberra. Get off the grass. He did. Whoa. Was he a big bloke? Yeah, huge man. Huge, tall, Greek-looking guy. Yeah. I once yeah. watched Paul Angelus kick 19 goals in half a game. Local fire department sent a truck along to VFA games to sound the siren at each quarter's end. I recall a tight game when the truck took off halfway through the final quarter. All hell broke loose as the umpire blew his whistle, believing the siren to have sounded. Everyone and their uncle were over the fence and onto the ground, thinking the game was over, offering their version of events. There's 10 minutes left, mate. They're fucked off to a fire. (laughs) A mate of ours once brought his own whistle to a game and created havoc by blowing it at various (laughs) stages at random. That's a great call. (laughs) Players stopped in their tracks, mistakenly believing the umpire had found a free kick. It was hilarious until a hefty halfback jumped the fence who played for Coburg and threatened to do random damage if it happened one more time. (laughs) You're the happiest you've ever been since I've ever met you in my life. This is what put me in a good mood, and I want to tell you this story. So I live in the southern highlands of New South Wales and drive up to Sydney every day, which is an hour 20 or 120 kilometres. And so coming out of the southern highlands, I drive along a genuine country road, no street lights, dark. I've got my high beams on and fog lights. And very occasionally, wildlife will jump out, and I am hell-bent on stopping rather than running it over. And today, a kangaroo jumped out of the grass in front of the car, so I'm pretty heavy on the anchors. Everything slips off the seat beside me and out of the console, heavy, and it hops really gingerly like it's just in the bush and stops in front of the car and looks up and gives gives the kind of bonnet radiator a bit of a sniff, like, no, what's that? And then kind of like... So I go, beep, beep, beep. And it's like, it looks around and starts hopping the other way. And I go, beep, beep, beep. And then it hops off and it's like, all right, Jesus. I didn't like the smell of you. I certainly don't like the sound of you. And then it hopped off the road into the bush. And it's a revelation that shouldn't have come to me as a revelation, Matt. But I thought, you live in the bush. Yeah. Which is an awesome thing. You're a wild animal. I need clothing and warmth and housing and I'm out here beeping at you telling you to get off the fucking road (laughs) and you live in the bush. That's where you live. Yeah, you're saying what is the fucking road? Yeah. Interrupting my habitat. Yeah, I have no idea what this is. The lights are blinding my nocturnal eyes. You stink. It's petrol or something (laughs) or oil and you're making noises and it just hops off it's like you eat and you live in the bush and you dwell with other things and i don't know whether you've you know there's obviously feral dogs or cats out there that are possible predators you're amazing dude yeah you are amazing yeah and it's a national icon it doesn't even know about yeah it's like uh, you're on coins what and so <laughs> on coins a, you're on coins you've got you've got boxing gloves on <laughs> on a flag that you we sell, sell to tourists if there were any <laughs> Yeah, we beat Americans in a yacht race. I don't know what yachts are. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> we celebrated you as a boxing kangaroo and, and men at work wrote this cool thing called Down Under. It's like, where are we? Ah, oh, you don't know any of that shit, kangaroo. Just hop off and 
eat grass. That would have been, if, if that was like a Swedish or a foreign film of some sort, that moment where it stops and looks at you and then sniffs the bonnet would have been some, you know, uh, point at which you turn your life around, burst into tears, uh, change your ways. Okay, let's do a little bit of European film here. So there's a scene of, you know, from the kangaroo's perspective, seeing me wide-eyed looking over the steering wheel at this creature and uh, then it cuts back to me. I'm look, and from my point of view, we can see the kangaroo and it hops off. Cut to... You masturbating. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not a Russian film. Right. <laughs> no, cut to... Early morning, we see a landscape with the mist still on it and tracks across. The car is in the middle of the road. Doors are open. Police lights flashing and police are having a look in the car and looking around. And then one says to the other, in Swedish, subtitles, he's not here. He's gone. And then cut to me naked, mudded up, just pretending to be a kangaroo, just hopping with them. <laughs> I live with the kangaroos. Right. And then eventually my wife comes and like, we live in a gully together, all the kangaroos and me, and she goes, Schlaben, Gerben, Schlaben. <laughs> is she the chef from the Muppets now? <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> and she says, for fuck's sake, just come home. <laughs> <laughs> Living as a marsupial is not the answer. Come home to your family. Let's wash the mud off and let's start again. The cops have impounded your car, you fuckwit. (laughs) I'll buy a ticket to that movie. (laughs) Anyway, enough of our (laughs) Swedish art house movie pictures. Let's get into the book. Brian Wilson, whom St Kilda fans had hated with a passion when he was a Melbourne player, became a cult figure on account of his outrageous arrogance. Every goal he celebrated like a last-second premiership winner. He'd run around the ground as if doing a lap of honour, high-fiving supporters strung along the fence, which looked ridiculous if we were 10 goals down late in the last quarter. (laughs) And it was the first kick he'd had all day. (laughs) Can I just tell you my Brian Wilson story? I don't know whether Brian Wilson has finished there, but I worked as a customs officer uh, for six years. And after you've graduated, after your year's training, you just become baggage fodder at the airport. And so in terms of, you know, the airport dating scene, if you will, or ecosystem, the girls that work in duty-free, you kind of strut up there in your uniform and have a chat to them and, you know, you're a uniformed guy. You've got a chance with a duty-free bird. Right, Um, and and you've got an Alsatian too, so uh, people love dogs. Well, yeah, this was just in the days before I was in the drug detector dog unit. Once you're a dog handler, you're a much better chance with a duty-free girl. Right. Uh, Of course, there's pilots, but they're cohabiting with people that work in the airlines or whatever. And so there's all these pecking orders. Brian Wilson, he was right up there. because below... If someone's just tuned in, we're talking about the football and not the uh, Beach Boys icon. So go Absolute on. Absolute genius lead singer and creator of the Beach Boys. No, we're talking about the Melbourne and St Kilda footballer, yep. Brian Wilson. He was an airport fireman, one of those guys that has the big four-wheel drive, massive giant truck with the cannon on the front of it, water cannon. And so in terms of sex appeal, those guys were just below 747 captains and so could strut through the airport. It's like, here come the firemen. 
And it's like, girls love firemen. We stood no chance. And plus he was a Brownlow medalist and a great footballer. So it's like, oh, my God, there's Brian Wilson. He's got it all. Yeah, he did have it all. Anyway, moving on. Rowan Smith, the bald, albino, freckle-faced bloke from Port Adelaide, was at least a laugh, providing supporters with the only excuse they'd ever likely to have to wear a rubber bald wigs in public during the daytime. (laughs) (laughs) Did seriously St Kilda supporters wear bald wigs in the footy? Yeah, he only played a couple of games for us. He was a legend at Port Adelaide (laughs) before they joined the AFL, and we got him. And uh, he played a, a really good game against Hawthorne for our first win out at Glenferry Oval against the Hawks for like 30 years. So, you know, he's got a place in our hearts. At Glenferry Oval. Did you go to Glenferry Oval as a football supporter? No, because that was the last season that it, uh, they played there. And I think 73. Mum and Dad made us go to the Dandenongs for a family drive that day. And, oh. and we, we didn't enjoy it. We were just like ears tuned to the transistor radio the whole time and getting abused by Dad for not joining in. As mum yeah. was like, mum was going through the Devonshire tea houses and the and the knickknack shops in in the Dandenongs, and we missed the first and only time we beat Hawthorne. <laughs> Miss Marple's Devonshire teas. If you haven't had a Devonshire tea for a while, I urge you to because because I worked on postcards on Channel Nine, we would inevitably do a Devonshire tea story every year in the Dandenongs, and what a treat it is to get scones, whipped cream, strawberry jam, and a good pot of tea. You can't, and also, I know we all make a joke about it, so, but what, what is it that makes your little finger stick out when you drink from a, a quality porcelain cup? It, it, like almost naturally, well, almost no, instinctively, reflex. On the, on the fine china teacup, there's, oh, there's no, no room. There's no room. That's right. Yeah, so you, you grab. Ah, so it's fact, not like an in, affectation. It's, a, it's no, a necessity. Yeah, unless you want to burn your fingers on the side of the fine china. Yeah. But there's only room for your two fingers. So actually, it's your two bottom fingers that stick out. You curl the second bottom finger, not your pinky, on, the next one your, in, yes. no, underneath, on the rim on the underneath for, like, mm. uh, support. I'm glad we've cleared that up. Yes. And if you're Tea from... Vicar. If you're, yes, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> if you're from, from anywhere other than uh, Victoria in Melbourne in Australia, then um, the Dandenongs are a beautiful fernery, forestry area. Simon O'Donnell. Mountain range. Yeah. Simon O'Donnell. Rising to a height of 609 metres. Simon O'Donnell who went on to become voted International Cricketer of the Year by Wisden, the uh, cricketing Bible publication, after he'd recovered from full-blown cancer. What an incredible individual Simon O'Donnell is. Simon O'Donnell rolled up to join the Saints with an enviable reputation, having kicked a billion goals as a schoolboy superstar footballer with Assumption College, the most successful breeding ground the VFL and AFL had ever known. Unfortunately for us, his football career fell by the wayside as his cricket career prospered. I met O'Donnell through a mutual mate a few years after he'd finished playing footy. O'Donnell recoiled as I reminded him of his first game, which I'd witnessed, where he was knocked out behind play by Michael Tuck of Hawthorne, of all people. I also recounted the origin of Simon O'Donnell's nickname at the Saints, which was Scuba. This he had earned by taking a dive after being belted at Arden Street by Phil Carmen, who was then playing his first and only season for North Melbourne. Not surprisingly, I was at the game with my brother myself, and we, along with most people at the ground that day, feared for O'Donnell's immediate future when he went down early in the second quarter. <laughs> the, the, the situation looked very serious. The special stretcher was called out and constructed around his prone body on the ground. Oh, that's right. They'd right? Sl- slide the slats underneath you so as not to damage your spine. That's more. right. If it's, yeah. The crowd uh, cheered their best wishes as O'Donnell was carried off the field. Unbeknownst to us... Because the game was already out of our hands and we were 12, 
12, down, 12 goals down before half time, and it was pissing with rain from the opening bounce onwards. O'Donnell had decided that he'd had enough. And when he was bumped quite firmly, decided he'd been knocked out as far as anyone else was concerned and got himself off the ground that way as quick as he could instead. So they then called him scuba as in scuba diver because the rest of, them had, rest of them had to endure the next two and a half quarters getting their asses kicked. In freezing conditions. Yeah, which he'd managed you'd, to avoid. You'd often see a scuba showered in their street clothes and sitting up in the stand eating a pie or a hot dog. You'd think, oh, hold on. Yeah, he doesn't look too, doesn't look too injured to me. <laughs> then, then came St Kilda's what I called reprieve recruits. If a player had so much of a sniff of success about them in their history, St Kilda's door was always open. From Hawthorne. Multi-premiership winning Hawthorne, we welcomed Michael Moncrief, Peter Russo and Sean Relsmith. Even if the players had previously been regulars in the reserves, St Kilda's committee rolled out the red carpet. Hell, you at least trained with the proper players who've done well. You must have something that might rub off on our blokes. (laughs) Maybe your old form will come back. Right. They were correct. What they had was a skill level no longer sufficient to remain in the first at their former club. And hence, they were guaranteed a game with ours. Many of them gave the Saints great service, but only after their original clubs had found somebody faster and fitter. In 1980, the Saints actually signed a bloke called Mick Jez. And to this day, I honestly believe that he was signed because he sounded a bit like Jezza, <laughs> who was a champion and also came from Carlton. <laughs> just somebody got excited. So if he's just a bit like Jezza Lenko, i.e. Jez, yeah. <laughs> we'll sign him. Not Jezza. <laughs> the, the greatest shimozzle St Kilda recruit created was when what the media termed the Doug Cox affair. St Kilda signed Doug Cox from Woodville, South Australia in 1981. I remember on, this. Yeah, on fine form immediately, it was revealed midway through the season he'd initially agreed to terms with the Tigers before arriving at Moorabbin, but had forgotten to tell the Saints. Richmond ignored the oversight until they saw him play and then suddenly chose to point out the illegalities in his Saints playing permit. <laughs> <laughs> now, Doug Cox, if I remember, was a corporal in the army. I That's right, my, he was. My, my dad was very impressed about that. It's like, right. we've got this corporal from the army, you'll be a hard man. Yeah, yeah, wow. Uh, an, an investigation from the AFL, or the then VFL, saw St Kilda forfeit its premiership points in punishment. We'd only, oh. won two, we'd only won two games to that stage of the season, so the loss was neither large nor significant. But at 12 years of age, with the Saints having won four wooden spoons in the first four seasons I followed them, I found it an absolutely shattering news story. Watching details of the crisis on the TV, I gravely announced to mum, it's going to be a long day. Exhaling heavily in a brave attempt to brace us all for the fear and furor we faced in the immediate future. (laughs) I do remember that. I remember saying it. And I remember mum, she must have been struggling not to burst out laughing in my face. It's going to be a long day. I then set off to purchase the newspapers, perversely excited about the boost such a huge story would give my scrapbook. (laughs) Mums really do ride the emotional roller coaster with you when you're a young supporter. Even, you know, into your late teens and early 20s, Essendon made the first grand final of my kind of like consciousness uh, in 1983 and we got flogged by Hawthorne by 83 points and I came home and I was I was 18 and I was quite despondent and my mum said, you know, she knew the results. She said, how, how was it? And I said, oh, it was terrible. I said, there was this little kid in front of me. I really felt sorry for him. He was there with his dad, you know. No, it was the first time we'd made the grand final since 1968. And uh, we the last one we'd won was 1965. I said, this little kid was just like all day just saying, come on, Bombers. Oh, 
come on, Bombers. <laughs> and um, just in the retelling of it, it kind of made me a bit emotional and thought, you know, the, the loss was starting to hit home. And my mum put her hand on my shoulder and said, come on, Bombers. I was like, oh. <laughs> Good on her. They could have mocked Good us. Good on mums. They could have mocked us. They joined in. Uh, they, they, they could see the... They could see the vulnerability of their youngest child hurting. Uh, and then we were getting hurt at home by our big brothers. Anyway. <laughs> and then just they would just turn a blind eye as our big brothers just systematically beat us and humiliated us, <laughs> probably actually, for their own good. When, uh, when, Dermot was talk- when Dermot was talking about getting beaten up by his older brothers, and you were too, I joined in, but I've got to confess, and you're going to hate this because of my, because of my so-called lucky upbringing. I never got belted much by my older brothers at all. <laughs> Sorry. Now, one time. Wow. No, one and time. And you know what? That is so indicative of your personality. There's one thing that you need, and that is a, such a savage beating. No, I've been, <laughs> mate, I think you know, I've probably told you, I, my, my mouth and cheek, let's put it that way, politely, certainly saw me walk into a few invisible knuckles in various pubs and clubs in oh, my yeah. youth. Um, anyhow. Yes, that's, that's the, uh, my kind of, summary of that part of my life. I started a lot of fights. I didn't finish any. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be in like suburban nightclubs, you know, and you just hear a strip for me, boy, strip for you, strip for me, cars, I want oh, you to. All that rubbish. And then um, take, 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 take or leave it. Won't you ever dream it? Ain't you ever gonna be respectful? All that, all that. See you later. See you later. Now, now, now. See you later. Yeah. We dance underneath the radar. Anyway, that was going on. Underneath the you're drinking. You're drinking West Coast Coolers if there wasn't any, you know, cold beer left. And walking into invisible fists. Fantastic. What a youth we, we shared. So uh, this is a, uh, a, a, sub, a subtitle uh, of one of the chapters, whichever the hell we're on now, and it's called The Music, Lawrence. Sometime around uh, 19... Back to me? the book. Back to the book, sorry. This is a subtitle to the chapter we're on called The Music. Sometime around 1980, Footy Favourites was unleashed on an unsuspecting public. An album... A vinyl album consisting of songs selected and sung by the stars of the game themselves. It represented without doubt the darkest day in musical recording history. Each team's representative was chosen for his football skills, not for any vocal ability. Trevor Barker crooned, I can see clearly now. While Footscray full forward, Kelvin Templeton made a bid for the worst vocal performance in human history with his rendition of Who's Sorry Now? And we all were. From first note to last. Who's sorry now? Who's sorry now? Whose heart is aching? Or breaking a vow? Collingwood captain Ray Shaw provided the Nadir, the most dismal, disastrous version of Danny Boy. (laughs) Danny Boy. Danny Boy! Yeah, delivered anywhere (laughs) by anybody under any circumstances. Let's take a listen now. Okay, that'll do us, Lawrence Mooney, for today. I am having a ball, so uh, please join us on the next episode and tell your friends. 
bring some friends along. Thanks for joining us. Okay, if you haven't given us a rate and review, now's the time. We're counting on you.